Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. On May 21st, 2009, shortly after his inauguration, President Obama delivered an important speech on national security, and he spent a lot of time talking about the legal status and constitutional and political questions surrounding the ongoing detention at the U.S. naval base at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, of individuals captured in connection with the war on terror. That naval base is still open, there are still individuals being detained there. We're still trying to conduct war trials. In some cases, we're still holding people until the end of hostilities, which are hard to envision ever ending in the way hostilities have traditionally ended, with a peace treaty between nations and an exchange of prisoners. But this is a different kind of war. So listen to President Obama back in 2009 describe what he considered to be the toughest single issue facing his administration. Now, finally, there remains the question of detainees at Guantanamo who cannot be prosecuted yet who pose a clear danger to the American people. And I have to be honest here, this is the toughest single issue that we will face. We're gonna exhaust every avenue that we have to prosecute those at Guantanamo who pose a danger to our country. But even when this process is complete, there may be a number of people who cannot be prosecuted for past crimes. In some cases, because evidence may be tainted but who nonetheless pose a threat to the security of the United States. Examples of that threat include people who've received extensive explosives training at Al-Qaeda training camps, or commanded Taliban troops in battle, or expressed their allegiance to Osama bin Laden, or otherwise made it clear that they want to kill Americans. These are people who, in effect, remain at war with the United States. Let me repeat, I am not going to release individuals who endanger the American people. Al-Qaeda terrorists and their affiliates are at war with the United States, and those that we capture, like other prisoners of war, must be prevented from attacking us again. These are individuals who have been captured as prisoners of war. According to the New York Times, there have been about 780 individuals detained at Guantanamo at one point or another. And of those, most have been transferred to the custody of another country. But there are about 40 who remain there. They're being detained by the executive branch. We can't bring them to trial in some cases because the evidence that we have against them would be inadmissible in trial. But nonetheless, we have reasons to conclude that they are and remain at war with the United States. What does the Constitution say about this situation? We could look at this from a variety of angles. In one of the great classic American films, Dodgeball, the famed coach Patches O'Houlihan gave a memorable and inspirational speech to his athletes about the five D's of Dodgeball. Because this is the way my mind works, at some point in class I came up with the five P's of constitutionalism. Principles, provisions, precedent, politics, and prediction. I want to take each one of these in turn as we consider the constitutional situation we're in with the ongoing detention of about 40 individuals, some without trial, at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. First, principles. One overarching principle of the Constitution is the rule of law and not individual will. Another is the distinction, which we discussed last episode, between the president's role in domestic affairs on the one hand and foreign affairs on the other, and that the powers are different both in their origin and scope. In domestic affairs, 
The powers of the government are limited and enumerated, but in foreign affairs they're plenary and are necessarily connected to the sovereignty of the United States. Second, provisions, the actual clauses in the constitutional text. The Constitution vests the executive power in the president. The president is commander-in-chief of the armed forces. Article 1, Section 9 says that the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety requires it. In this instance, the specific cases of rebellion or invasion point to domestic affairs, underscoring the idea that the executive may not arbitrarily detain individuals on American soil. That in our domestic affairs, absent a time of dire emergency occasioned by rebellion or invasion, an individual may always seek a judicial review of the grounds of their detention by the executive. The president is bound both to abide by legal process and to offer reasons and evidence for someone's detention in the exercise of executive power domestically. And in foreign affairs, the president is still subject to law and to the limits of the Constitution, but those constitutional limits are much more open-ended because foreign affairs involve delicate questions of prudence and requires in many cases both secrecy and quick and decisive action, something the framers talked about as energy in the executive branch. Third, precedent. The clear precedents we have for this situation are the recognized laws of war codified in the Geneva Convention involving people detained as prisoners of war. People taken captive in war are recognized as lawful combatants. They're not to be prosecuted simply for taking part in hostilities. Their detention is not to be a form of punishment, and they're to be released and repatriated at the end of hostilities. The problem, though, is that the war on terror is unprecedented. The people who are captured are not lawful enemy combatants in international law. They're not uniformed members of a foreign nation's military. There's no obvious time in which hostilities will end. And so we've had to take these principles, provisions, and precedents and adapt them for new circumstances. And that takes us to politics. Not politics in the ordinary partisan sense, but in a higher sense of constitutional politics, of the working out of these constitutional issues through political conflict between departments of the federal government and through policy changes connected to new people assuming office after elections for Congress and the presidency, new appointments to the Supreme Court. Here's a short overview of the politics. In 2001, shortly after 9-11, Congress passed the Authorization for the Use of Force, And in that joint resolution, Congress said that the president is, quote, authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines, planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001. President George W. Bush then issued an executive order on November 11, 2001, saying that if there were any individuals whom the president had good reasons to believe were members of al-Qaeda or who had engaged in or were helping to plan and commit acts of international terrorism that affected the United States or its citizens, its national security, foreign policy, or its economy, then the Secretary of Defense would ensure that any of those individuals would be detained at a location that the Secretary of Defense will determine. And once detained, they would be tried, if they were tried at all, by a military commission, according to procedures that would be created by the Secretary of Defense. And then the order says that the military tribunals will have exclusive jurisdiction in these cases, that the detainees, quote, shall not be privileged to seek any remedy or maintain any proceeding in any court of the United States, any foreign nation, or any international tribunal. Can the president do that? Just by an executive order, detain people, determine how they'll be tried, if they'll be tried at all, what the procedures will be, and then say that there can be no judicial review in any court in the world? 
Not surprisingly, some of the attorneys representing men detained in Guantanamo challenged their detention in U.S. courts and by implication challenged the lawfulness of this executive order. One of those cases was Hamdan versus Rumsfeld in 2006, a case involving a Yemeni national who was accused of being Osama bin Laden's driver, and he was tried by military commission for conspiracy to commit acts of terrorism. The case wasn't decided on constitutional grounds so much as on statutory grounds. The Supreme Court argued that the military tribunals created by the executive branch didn't conform to the rules governing military commissions in the Uniform Code of Military Justice, an act of Congress that explicitly incorporates parts of the Geneva Conventions and then prohibits for detainees, quote, the passing of sentences and the carrying out of executions without previous judgment pronounced by a regularly constituted court, affording all the judicial guarantees which are recognized as indispensable by civilized peoples. In a narrowly written opinion, the court said to the Bush administration, you haven't done that with the tribunals you've set up under this executive order. But in dissent, Justice Thomas, joined by Justices Scalia and Alito, argued that this simply wasn't a question for the court. The decision, he said, quote, openly flouts our well-established duty to respect the executive's judgment in matters of military operations and foreign affairs. The court's evident belief that it is qualified to pass on the military necessity of the commander-in-chief's decision to employ a particular force against our enemies is so antithetical to our constitutional structure that it simply cannot go unanswered. The Constitution, Justice Thomas wrote, confers upon the president broad constitutional authority to protect the nation's security in a manner he deems fit. Continuing with the constitutional politics after the decision in Hamdan versus Rumsfeld, A Republican Congress soon passed the Military Commissions Act of 2006, which created a system of military commissions to determine the status of someone in military custody, and then provided, quote, that no court, justice, or judge shall have jurisdiction to hear or consider an application for a writ of habeas corpus filed by or on behalf of an alien detained by the United States, who's been determined by the United States to have been an enemy combatant or is waiting such a determination. Open and shut case, right? Congress has determined that the Supreme Court lacks jurisdiction in these cases. They've suspended the writ of habeas corpus for those detained by the executive. What more can the courts do? Well, in a follow-up case, Boumediene v. Bush in 2008, the court took up the question of whether the Military Commission's Act lawfully suspended the writ of habeas corpus and thereby lawfully stripped the Supreme Court of its jurisdiction and argued that it did not that it wasn't issued during a time of rebellion or invasion as the suspension clause would require. Listen here to Justice Anthony Kennedy's description of the issues in his opinion announcement in that case. As we hold that the habeas corpus privilege runs to Guantanamo and to these petitioners, it follows that Congress must not contravene the suspension clause as it applies to persons detained at the Naval Station. Because Congress did not purport to enact a formal suspension of the writ pursuant to the clause's exception, and the exception is for cases of rebellion or invasion, the question arises whether the procedure it provided to review the CSRT determinations in the Court of Appeals is an adequate substitute for habeas corpus. In its decision, the Court of Appeals ruled that the writ did not run to the detainees, so it was unnecessary for that Court to consider the adequacy of the CSRT review procedures and whether that was an adequate substitute for the writ. In the ordinary course, we likely would remand to the Court of Appeals to consider in the first instance whether the review procedures are an adequate substitute for habeas corpus. Here, however, there are exceptional circumstances. These include the gravity of the constitutional issues, the length of the detention to date, 
and the indeterminate time during which detention might continue. Some of these detainees have been in custody for six years. So we now reach the question whether the review procedure Congress provided is an adequate substitute. We find this statutory review procedure is not an adequate substitute. (coughs) The opinion discusses past instances of congressional statutes that provided uh, for alternative and supplemental review procedures. We note that in those instances, the habeas corpus right was still preserved. That is not true here. Here, the applicable statute eliminates habeas corpus altogether. We consider also the restrictions on the procedure Congress has provided, namely the limits on introducing evidence discovered after the CSRT proceeding concluded. Since there is no adequate substitute, these habeas corpus actions must proceed. Now, the statute we identify as unconstitutional is the jurisdiction-stripping provision of the Military Commissions Act of 2006. The review process for CSRT hearings, and the CSRTs themselves, can remain intact. But the habeas corpus process, in these cases where there has been delay, can proceed at once. Consider for a second just how remarkable of an opinion this is. Congress tried to strip the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, or any federal court, to hear habeas corpus petitions from Guantanamo. And the court turned around and said, no, you can't do that. You didn't lawfully strip our jurisdiction, and so we retain in these cases our jurisdiction to hear them. Now listen to get a sense of the division on the court, to Justice Scalia summarizing his dissenting opinion. Although it is true that habeas is an important tool for ensuring that the executive does not overstep constitutional bounds, it is equally true that the traditional limits on habeas jurisdiction are important to assure that the judiciary does not overstep constitutional bounds. We simply have no competence to second-guess military authorities who have to make the life-or-death judgment calls about who is and who is not an enemy prisoner. Even when the matter was left to military authorities, many of the Guantanamo, Guantanamo prisoners who have been released over the past five years have returned to the battle. Just last month, a former detainee perpetrated a a suicide bombing that killed seven Iraqi soldiers. When uninformed Article III judges, rather than knowledgeable military authorities, under rules laid down by Congress, are in charge of determining who will be released, this problem can only get worse. The Court's opinion appeals to the rule of law. But the rule of law includes limitations upon the courts, just as it includes limitations upon the other two branches. In our entire history, no prisoner held by our military forces during an ongoing armed conflict has been given resort to our civil courts. Hundreds of thousands of German prisoners were held in this country during World War II, and I am unaware of any of them uh, being uh, — I am un unaware that any court ever intervened in their detention. And they were held in the United States. And in our entire history, no writ of habeas corpus has ever before issued at the instance of an alien held abroad. Congress has provided for significant judicial involvement with respect to the detainees at Guantanamo. But that is not enough for today's court, which creates a constitutional right to habeas for aliens abroad that has no precedent in English or American law. We will live to regret 
this self-invited and unprecedented incursion of the judiciary into military affairs. And now, finally, the last P of constitutionalism predictions. Justice Scalia offered one at the end of his dissent, that we would live to regret the day Boumediene was decided. Now, whether or not that's come to pass, it did change the constitutional politics of detention. Those detained at Guantanamo were able to bring their cases into the federal district court in Washington, D.C. Some were released, like Boumediene, after district courts found insufficient evidence for imprisonment as enemy combatants. Boumediene now lives with his family in France. But for others, there was sufficient evidence found by the district court for their ongoing detention as enemy combatants to be held until the end of hostilities in the war on terror, a war that continues to challenge us to think deeply about our Constitution.